to do that and I want to invite Pastor Rob up here as he wraps up our series Changed by Jesus. What, yeah, let's welcome Rob. <laughs> you know your weekend is not going to go as planned when water is pouring out from the bathroom vanity drawers. How was your weekend? I'm convinced when we get to heaven that we know wallpaper and plumbing won't be a problem, because that's weeping and gnashing of teeth right there. It got fixed, but it was not on my agenda, let's just say that. And boy, there's not a, room, a lot of room under that vanity. So when I, when I read the Bible, and I guess I caught this from my dad, um, he, would, he would use a ruler and underline stuff, and so I underline and I, I color code, and half of that is it keeps me engaged. I mean, I'm so easily distracted, it keeps me engaged. And, um, and as I go through, I'll underline things or make notes, and I'll go through an entire Bible, no matter how long it takes me. And, um, and at the end, when I'm done, I'll buy another one and start all over again. And so I have all the Bibles I've ever read, actually since I got one in grade school, um, except for one that I actually gave a friend in high school, and I want that one back. But uh, because that one, I had my friends in high school sign it. I went to a big public high school in Chicago, and I just brought it with me and said, hey, sign my Bible. Like, I could do that? They were afraid, like, God would strike them dead if you wrote in it. I'm like, no, I mean, you're my friend, whatever. But also, as I read, I read, I would go to one of the blank pages in the back, and I'd see it, like, along the way, I'd, I'd pick up a theme. Like, oh, I want to, later, I'd like to go back and study that. You know, sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't, but I just kind of write those in there. For example, I, you know, I, I, I had not noticed before, but how often Jesus would say the phrase, the kingdom of God and or the kingdom of heaven. And so I went back eventually and did study that one. You know, I was a pastor. That's one of the things I want you know, to, to do. And man, like who, how does he describe it? Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? It's a, it was just fascinating to do that. But I also picked up other things. Like I wanted to look back through all the miracles that Jesus did. And, and then actually I went through the whole Bible and what are all the miraculous events, what's common to them, what's unique to some of them. And then I went back, same thing on, on when there was, there was confrontation with demonic forces and when Jesus spoke and, and there was healing and people were freed. And so what was that like? Uh, and then sometimes I'll come along like, I want to study a person. And for a long time, I've, you know, again, would make the list would actually would be Judas. How could he be that close to all that was right and good and miss it. So I started to do that. I wrote him in there and I started to do that, but I got a little confused because there's more than one Judas. There's over six of them, at least six I could count. So there's Judas Iscariot, which that's what he's known by because you don't confuse him with the other ones. And a brother of Jesus, there was another disciple named Judas. And when you get to the book of Acts, there are three other ones. So if you decide to look up Judas and start hunting, you may get confused. Just put in the back of your mind, there's more than one. Though I would imagine today there's not a whole lot of people that share that name. You're probably thinking this, hey, hey, Rob, wait a second. This is a series on people whose lives are changed by Jesus. And we're going to look at Judas. You seem like you're off your rocker. Well, that part is true. Um, but you see, I believe that Judah's story has some important lessons that could serve as a great launching pad 
for us to see how it's possible that religious people can be just as lost as anybody else. And though Judas's story ends tragically, it's not the case for others. Hang in there, and let's see if maybe when we get to the end, it makes its point. In fact, I wonder and have wondered coming into this particular message on this week if there will be somebody today who ends up changing their life and surrendering to Jesus actually for the first time realizing that there are some parallels in their own story and in the one I'll share at the end of the message. It is our hope and it is our prayer that is true if there's any one of you that fits into that place. Well, the first time we actually see Judas mentioned is in Luke 6 and also in Mark 3. And this moment comes after Jesus has been doing public ministry for about anywhere from nine months to about a year and a half. It had been a while. It had been very much a, uh, in one area of, of the, where he was raised, and it was just a few, a couple of first followers by name. But by the time we get to this moment, what we're going to see in a, uh, in a minute, is it been nine months to about a year and a half. Um, and uh, Jesus had a few disciples. He was going from town to town. Often he was healing people. He was teaching people. And they were just blown away by what he had been teaching. He had just healed a man in the synagogue, so think the church, which was witnessed by a number of people. And they knew the guy, and so they were blown away at this happening in front of their faces, except for the religious leaders. They were ticked. Because in their mind, when God said to rest on the Sabbath and do no work, they were ticked at Jesus for other reasons, so they used this as an excuse. They stretched it and said, you healed, so you did work, and so you disobeyed God. You're not in, in touch with who God is. It's true. God told the people of God to not work on the Sabbath, not because he was cruel. No, because he knows how we're wired. And we need a healthy rhythm of work and play and rest and need to be reminded that even all of our work does not provide. God is the ultimate provider for us. God knew how it was important for them to remember those things and live in that way. But those religious leaders lost the spirit of what God had intended and became blind to what God was doing even when it was in front of their faces. Instead of rejoicing and seeing Jesus for who he was, they grew angrier and angrier. So right after this moment, Jesus takes his disciples away, but a large crowd gathers, which is beginning to happen more and more and more everywhere he goes. And now we pick up this moment where Judas Iscariot is mentioned for the first time in Luke chapter 6, page 786 on the Bible in front of you. A brief, a brief passage. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Up until this point, even though early on there were just a few named disciples, after nine months to a year and a half, many were following, and so he calls this larger group to him. I always thought that when Jesus came on the scene and started his ministry, he already had his 12 in mind. That didn't happen right away. So he calls his disciples to him and chose 12 
to be his apostles. And the names are listed, and the last name on the list, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. With the crowds growing and growing and growing, it is very clear Jesus intentionally is going to choose time to invest in a few so those few will take that message then and after he's gone farther out. And Jesus chooses Judas. He gives Judas a chance. And though we don't see Judas mentioned by name much more after this particular moment, Every time you and I read, Jesus and the 12 did this. Jesus went here and the 12 were with him. Or Jesus and his disciples were here. Judas is in that group. For instance, right after Judas is chosen to be one of the 12, he was there when Jesus speaks to this large crowd that gathered in what you and I uh, uh, know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he, Judas heard every word. He was there when a Roman centurion came to Jesus and asked him to heal his servant. But that Jesus didn't have to come all the way because as a, as a Roman centurion, he knew what it was like to give orders. And he trusted that Jesus could speak the word. And there in front of all these people, Jesus had a wonderful teachable moment because he was amazed at that Roman centurion not a follower of, G of God's faith, and said, what amazing faith. There oh, the, everybody would have the faith in that centurion. Judas heard that and saw that. Judas was also there when Jesus raised the son of a poor widow at the funeral procession. Boy, that must have been a moment. He was also there when Jesus spoke to another large crowd of people, and, and he uses all kinds of metaphors, stories, and parables but then he even takes the 12 aside, and Judas would have been one of them, to explain a little bit more about what he was saying because the disciples didn't pick it all up. There were numerous moments where Jesus would pull the 12 aside and Judas would be in that group. He was also there when he was out in the Sea of Galilee at a raging storm that scared even seasoned fishermen. And with the word, Jesus spoke and calmed the storm. And get this. This one raises so many more questions to me. He was there when Jesus pulled the 12 together and commissioned them and empowered them to go in pairs out from city to city to city to preach, to teach, to drive out evil spirits and heal people. Man, I got questions, forgot about that one. Soon after they come back and report this, all just jacked up and excited about what they had just experienced, another huge crowd had gathered, and there were over 5,000 of them. Because everywhere Jesus was going, the crowds were growing and the crowds were following. And not only were people intrigued and amazed by the miraculous healings that they saw in front of their face to people they knew, but they were hungry for the life-giving message that Jesus was giving, which was in stark contrast to most, if not all, of the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus spoke for hours to that huge crowd. He loved them and spoke that life-giving message to them, and then it came time to eat. And all they could gather are five loaves of bread and two fish. Somehow, some way, that small portion kept multiplying until this crowd of well over 5,000 ate and were fully fed. And here's the kicker on the back end. 
the disciples were the ones giving out the food, and there was one basket left of leftovers for each disciple. Judas would have handed out that fish and that bread and would have come back with leftovers in a basket for him. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. And as that happening once wasn't enough, in another city not long after that, well over 4,000 people. Same thing happens. All fed by the miraculous power of Jesus. And, and imagine, if you, if you take any of the Bibles in the back that have a map in it, and you, and you just watch when it goes from city to city, and you calculate the miles in your head, they walked. Can you imagine all the conversations they had for a seven-mile walk, a 25-mile walk, a 50-mile walk? They would go from one town to there is unending conversations that had to have taken place in that short amount of time, and he would have been there walking with all of them. In time, the crowds grew so large and so insistent, we would see more and more Jesus would pull the 12 aside to teach them, to give them rest, to realign their thinking, which would, had been uh, needed to be realigned into the way that understands the life-giving message that he'd been talking about. On one of those occasions, where he pulled them aside, he asks two very important questions. The first question is this. Who do the people say that I am? When the disciples respond, their responses reflect much of the confusion among the people who are hearing Jesus' message. But it's the next question that to me is the most important. When he asks them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? In the scriptures, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the one we've been waiting for, the one true Savior and Lord. And Jesus affirmed that statement, but Peter had got it. And the question I have is, how would Judas have answered that question in that moment? Had he been asked, Judas, who do you say that I am? There's so much more. And, and if you go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looking on the hunt, look for when he's named and look for the 12 or anytime it's Jesus and his disciples and make notes for yourself and let me know. I think it's a fascinating study. The point is this. Judas walked alongside Jesus. He heard him speak time and time and time again. He saw miracle after miracle but instead of being changed by Jesus, he grew disillusioned and turns on him. Now, it could be from greed, because we know that he was a keeper of the treasury of the money and was taking money from there. We saw him react to an exuberant expenditure of money, but it could also be because he grew disillusioned because he was hoping that Jesus would be the physical ruler that would overthrow the Roman government, and it's not what he was about. It may be a combination of all of that. Regardless, as Judas remained lost, as did many other religious leaders and people in that day. But not all. Not all. In spite of the pressure within the community of religious leaders to remain disbelieving of Jesus, to call him out as being actually an antithesis of who was somebody that was connected to God, there were some within that own community who believed. This statement in John 12 is the most amazing to me because it says, despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Man, doesn't that mess with your head? 
I think if I saw something miraculous, I'd believe too. But that's a thread to study because the miracles were never a guarantee of lifelong eternal faith. And this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Many people, though, did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. But they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees, who were other religious leaders, would expel them from the synagogue. The pressure, both socially and relationally, was enormous, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And later in the book of Acts, after Christ has gone, we read this. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Religious people, but were lost. In Acts 13 and in Acts 17, though there was all kinds of opposition to this growing message long after Christ had been gone, we read that there are many devout people responding and becoming followers of Jesus. And then there's also a guy named Nicodemus. He was actually one of those ruling religious leaders of the day, but he had questions for Jesus. It was clear that he couldn't have asked them out loud because he would have been derided, which he was later for even asking them in a way that was um, inquisitive uh, about what Jesus, who he was about. And so he goes to Jesus at night because he didn't want it to be known. And he speaks to Jesus secretly. And a little bit of their conversation is recorded in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. You, you could almost feel the wheels turning in Nicodemus. Like, it wasn't making sense. It was so different than what he saw within his own peers and the, the, the religious leaders of that day. But he's thinking, and it's, it's not making sense, but it's so intriguing and it's so life-giving, and it's different from his own upbringing. And it is in this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus at night that one of the most famous Bible verses is, is written and recorded for us. Can you imagine Nicodemus hearing this? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone, underline bold, capital letters, everyone who believes, it wasn't on God's end, it was on those who choose to believe. Everyone who believes will not perish but have eternal life. As religious as Nicodemus was, he was hearing something fresh, different, and life-giving. It has me wondering when it all made sense to him. At somewhere, when did it click? Because after Jesus is crucified, we find Nicodemus, who was secretly going to Jesus out of fear from what his peers would say, publicly going and asking, along with a wealthy religious leader named Joseph from a place called Arimathea, the two of them to go get Jesus' body after he'd been crucified. Because now he too had become a disciple of Jesus. The scriptures are full of stories of people that did all kinds of religious things, believing that they were connected to God when in reality they were not. In fact, it was religious people who called for Jesus' death. Yet in spite of the pressure to be like all of the other religious people of that day, many did realize that Jesus was the one true Savior and Lord and went from being religious to being a follower of Jesus, which changed their lives forever. At this point, I think it would be great to introduce a story of some lives that were changed by Jesus. 
a couple of people that I knew that uh, you would not have known, and they've since passed, but I think it so fits, and this is the first story that came to my mind weeks and weeks ago. And this is a story about Bill and, Bill and Mary Milko. They represent two of the many adults that loved me and, uh, and my friends when I grew up. They raised four boys, and their two youngest boys, Mike and Marty, are two of my dearest friends to this day. We're the closest in age. Mary volunteered in the children's ministry probably from the days of Noah. I mean, that's all I know is Mary in the children's ministry. To me and my cousins and friends, she was Miss Mary. Uh, Miss Mary was wonderful. Um, she, she was vibrant, energetic, and she was tough when needed. I mean, she had four boys, um, but she also had a great sense of humor. Because her four boys drove her nuts going to the refrigerator, opening it, and, and wondering if something changed three minutes ago from when they looked, she actually put a counter on the refrigerator to make a point. Like, you guys are opening that too much. They opened it so much, it broke the counter. <laughs> Miss Mary wasn't thrilled. She also had um, something that I'd never seen before, a, um, a doghouse posted on her wall. And it was just like that. And so the, the four boys, the, there was a dog for each boy, and each boy had their name on it. And if you were in trouble, you were in the doghouse. So, of course, I'm over there with my friends, my cousins, and um, there was nobody in the doghouse in the moment. And while she's not looking, my cousin David takes Marty, the youngest one's dog, and puts it in the doghouse and says, Miss Mary, why is Marty in the doghouse? And she turns and looks at Marty. He says, why are you in the doghouse? He says, I'm not in the doghouse. Why you? Marty, there's a reason you're in the doghouse. And we're cracking up. While she's yelling at Marty, she's winking at us. <laughs> Miss Mary Milko was incredible. That dear woman loved Jesus with all her heart, and she wanted us to do the same. It was so clear. Jesus had changed every aspect of her life, and from my view, she was flabbergasted by anyone that didn't love or follow him. And it was that day to the very end for her. Her husband, Bilbo, was very different. He could be quite gruff. And I honestly don't ever recall him talking about his faith throughout their lifetime. Though he served as a trustee in the church for decades. I, I forever remember him caring for things in the church with the crew of guys that, would, that served as trustees. But often he would intimidate me because he came across as gruff. But over time I grew to know and love that man very dearly. Um, by the mid-80s, Bill had lost his wife, Miss Mary, to cancer. About five years later, Bill himself was diagnosed with inoperable terminal cancer. And that diagnosis came the same week I was in Chicago at the burial for my own mom, who had helped care for Bill's wife, Mary, during her last days. And so I walk into the hospital room. He knows why I'm there. And it was a very emotional moment for the both of us. But just to see him, and that was the last time I actually saw him. But soon after my visit, um, his daughter's in-laws came to visit him because they wanted to be sure that he know where he was going after he died. Because you see, they weren't sure, as were many others, weren't sure. His faith wasn't as clear. It wasn't as evident. He had seemed like to me that he was a person that was church going, but had never fully committed to give his life to Christ. Well, they, he prayed with them in the hospital, and as his son Mike spoke to him later, he admitted that he had prayed with them and that, he, that Christ was his Savior and Lord. Excuse me, Savior and Lord. 
To be sure, I remembered the story, the way it happened. I called Mike, because Mike and Marty are, as I said, dear friends to this day. Mike reminded me that his dad went into remission after that and had a few good months with him and with the other kids and the grandkids. It was so precious. And Mike noticed a, they noticed a difference in, in Bill, in his dad, who could be gruff, uh, who could be very critical and demanding. And that difference was a reflection of what seemed to be of his faith in Christ that seemed new in that moment. But yet, I'd asked Mike, I said, Mike, do you think maybe he was following Jesus before that? But in the hospital, he had given his life to Christ. He said, I don't know. I don't know. And that's the point, isn't it? We didn't know. I don't want anybody hearing this to be saying right now, I don't know. This is a wonderful moment to move from potentially being somebody who is religious and church going, but actually still lost. Because somewhere along the way, you'd never made that decision to tell Jesus, I'm in. I give you my life and I'll follow you all my days. The scriptures are full of stories of people that did all kinds of religious things, believing they were connected to God when in reality they were not. Yet despite the pressure to be like most of the religious people of that day, there were many that realized Jesus was the one true Savior and Lord, and their lives were changed forever. Over and over, Jesus had a very simple message. Repent of your sins and turn to God. The disciples in Acts are recorded expanding and saying that same message over and over again. Repent, turn to God, and be baptized. I want to give those of you who maybe this is your day, whether you're listening online or sitting in like, you know what? I've never done that. I've, I've just assumed. I've been coming to church. I do the things that I do, and I've just assumed I know many of you that you've already been down that road, and that's wonderful. For you, these moments could very simply be, God, I want to recommit and remind you, I'm all in. You are, my, you are my Lord and my Savior for all my days. And at the same time, praying for those who may be coming to your mind and just wondering where they're at, just as Bill and his relatives were. There are all kinds of ways to do this, and how do we say some time, timeless truths in different ways? Or Let me try it this way. If this is where you are, these three simple things that can maybe help you make this, to take this step is to repent, which means to walk one way and turn the other, but to acknowledge in a culture today where nobody's wrong, the message of Jesus was that then and today is to repent, to acknowledge I am not perfect. I'm not living the humanness you created me to be, God. And in your eyes, I'm, 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 I fall far below the perfection of who you are. I need to acknowledge that first. And for some, whew, I, for all of us, it's the hurdle of pride. That's the first step, is to repent and acknowledge the reality of my sinfulness. But the second, in that moment, as you repent and turn, it's like your hands are open. God, I will receive from you, which as independent people, we often like to be, I want to do it on my own. No, I got to say, I got to receive it. I need your love because I don't love like you do. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. So I repent, I turn, and now I choose to follow Jesus all my days. If that was you, tell God in your own words, even right now where you're sitting. And if that was you, pull your phone out. Put down May 22nd, 
2022 to know that that was the day you prayed because there may be a day when you wonder. But next to that date, put John 3.16. And then tell three friends. Tell them what you've done. Because once again, if you hit one of those moments of doubt, you pull open the phone, you remember the day, you re-look up that classic verse, and you call one or two or three of those friends or family members and say, can you remind me of that moment in my life? And then, of course, to be baptized, to stand in front of your friends and family and say, I'm in. It's me and Jesus for the rest of my life. We're going to give you a few moments to consider that if you have not already. And again, for those of you who you're already there, you're praying for people that come to your mind and you're reaffirming your commitment to follow Jesus all your days. Remember this, the love of God is unending. It penetrates the hearts even of those who are religious but lost. And just like anybody else, he rejoices when the lost finally turn and walk in to the open arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for pursuing us relentlessly. You've done all the work ahead of time and you will walk with us and empower us every day of our life, regardless of what we run into. Thank you for the timeless truths and story after story after story of lives that have been changed.